BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Toronto Raptors continuing what has been an epic comeback, taking a 3-2 lead at the expense of the Milwaukee Bucks, 105-99. I uh, picked the Toronto Raptors in this series. I disavowed that pick after game one and now I'm looking quite prescient still though plenty of hope but for Bucks fans a it was somewhat random that I came across this stat last week but the record for teams that trail three to two in a series overall since 1984 is 27 and 162 all time but in this specific situation when a team wins the first two at home loses three in a row they actually are eight and seven in the series moreover in all of those eight wins well actually i should say it another way every single time the team that was down three two won game six on the other team's home court they also won the game seven so that happened eight times obviously if, they, if they're eight and seven some might say oh well that's because that team had home court advantage not so much actually the overall teams that had home court advantage down three two are 16 and 53 winning 19 percent of the time so that's a lot better when you're down three two as the road team but still pretty pretty ugly do you think there could be anything about winning the first two and losing the next three that could make you more likely to win a series or is that just random noise my instinct is that it's random noise but i i I can't really see too too much there off the top of my head and and especially when you're dealing with that small a sample size there could be you know guys coming back from injury foul trouble make or miss league all those sorts of things it's such a stark difference though. it is though that that is pretty interesting well i mean you get into the thing that 80 percent of game sevens are won by the home team so if you win it it doesn't surprise me that road teams that win game sixes often win the game seven so i guess if you make that extrapolation that a portion of those teams they're the better seed and all that i, I guess i do kind of see it from that perspective i mean maybe what you could say is teams that go up to zero you've won the desperation game two already where the team is already down one zero you kind of get this yo-yo effect a lot of times in nba playoff series and so you must be really good to have gone up 2-0 to begin with even if you then lose two on the road and then lose that third at, at home maybe that's part of it so I, I, that's the best explanation i came up with admittedly kind of unsatisfactory I, I like you i would default more to it being random noise and i certainly would not give the bucks over a 50 percent chance of winning this series still that's for sure no i wouldn't either but let's let's start with somebody who was definitely a lot more than satisfactory and that's Kawhi leonard i thought Kawhi leonard really did put his stamp on this game and for me, the definitive stretch was the beginning of the fourth quarter. At the beginning of the fourth quarter, the Bucks led by three. They were up 75 to 72. Leonard then scores 10 points in a little bit over four minutes. And at the end of that, 
the Raptors are up four. And throughout that fourth in particular, he was doing something really interesting, which was attacking the way Milwaukee chose to defend him by taking away his drives to the right. Yeah, and I think the combination of his strategy and Toronto, again, hitting a bunch of three-point shots, they started cold, unlike in game four. In game four, we talked about, hey, you know, they didn't end up shooting it that well from three, but because they hit a bunch early, that loosened up the Bucks' defense. That really started happening uh, in the third quarter. Van Vliet, in particular, was going crazy, and he finished seven of nine from three for all 21 of his points and was plus 28 in this game. But what Kawhi was doing, number one, there there wasn't that help at the nail that's always there number two what he would do is instead of just going left when they're shading him left he would still try and attack right first and he was able to draw a foul just attacking the the top side foot of Milton at one point those fouls were huge by the way because Toronto got a lot of offense late from off ball fouls that took place uh, or I should say non-shooting fouls that because they're in the bonus send them to the line and then if he attacked right and got cut off now not only are you shaded right it's almost like the James Harden just go ahead runway because even though you're shading him to his left if he attacks right you still have to make another move to your left and now you're opening up or to your left as the defender Kawhi's right and now you're opening up that left hand drive even more so he went right down Broadway for a couple of fouls was able to get right to the nail pull up and well many have said I've even talked to some warriors who said yeah Kawhi can only go right blah blah and I thought they did a pretty good job to influence him that way in a straight iso the fact that they were putting him on the right side of the floor on a lot of these as well meant that then he could just penetrate right into the middle of the floor and rise up for the jump shot whereas if he's on the left side of the floor now you're forcing him towards the baseline he doesn't really have much room there the other thing that he was able to do is i thought this was maybe the best passing game i've ever seen him have he had nine assists had a bunch of passes in the first half too where they missed open threes uh so really it was the worst of both worlds for Toronto they didn't stop him particularly well he also actually had the touch from three which was big two at five of eight but then he also was setting up other guys from the three-point line in Toronto it leveled off a little bit for for much of the game they were taking almost 60 percent of their shots from downtown and they finished 18 out of 43 they made 18 threes and 13 twos in the game they shot 32 percent from three but that was enough when this is a very good three-point shooting team after they got Gasol and the Philly series they couldn't shoot it a lot of their good shooters were missing. Van Vliet is, is a perfect example of this. And now the last two games, he can't miss all of a sudden. He's a good three-point shooter. You know, he, he was going to come around, you would hope, uh, eventually there. So uh, uh, all that is to say that Kawhi really dominated. And then finally, this was huge too. At the end, those two offensive rebounds that he had were massive in the fourth quarter. Yeah, they, they absolutely were. And one of them, he got the rebound and then didn't really have much of a place to go, but got fouled by Giannis. And then that allowed, I believe that was in the bonus. So he got to the free throw line. He was five of six in that fourth quarter from the line. Lowry was three of four. And I think the other big takeaway for me from this game beyond Kawhi being amazing was the gains that we saw from Toronto on the defensive end. I thought those largely held. Yeah, Milwaukee, when they were able to get out in transition, they were fantastic but they got out in transition less and their half court offense was very limited yeah another really atrocious showing by this buck offense which was one of the best in the nba all season tonight 83.1 offensive rating in the half court 18th percentile by the way toronto's half court offensive rating 96 which is actually above league average overall because we're talking about just your first shot in the half court not even including putbacks here so that's going to be lower but i mean that's just milwaukee just 
could not really get good shots a lot of their threes were very well contested as well i mean toronto is one of if not the best closeout teams in the nba with some of the length that they have in the perimeter and just the intelligence their effort has been outstanding really all series other than maybe game two uh, they've defended extremely well anything else uh, and, and that second Kawhi offensive rebound he misses the three short and sprints in from the three-point line just knew where it's going to be grabbed it and then ended up getting free throws out of that when he got shoved out of bounds that was, was maybe the key play uh, after brooke lopez hit a big three to tie it uh that gave toronto the lead for good um anything else that sticks out to you about the end of this game well, well something else i wanted to bring up i'm sure there are people who would use as a shorthand given their you know breakout status and and how great they are in transition that Milwaukee's struggles in the half court are not that big of a surprise. And yes, this is full season. Almost every team Milwaukee plays is, is worse than, I mean, is better. In, like, you know, Toronto is better at half court defense than almost everybody they play in the regular season. But the Bucks were third in half court offense during the regular season. And that's, you know, so this isn't just a team overcoming a weakness that they had during during the, those 82 games. No, this was an absolute strength for the Bucks as well. Yeah, that's an important context here. The Bucks three-point shooting in this series you know after game one when they won despite shooting 25 percent a lot of people and i kind of brought into this a little bit we're saying well i mean the bucks won this one they only shot 25 percent. they're not going to do that again and that's correct they basically have shot 32 percent every single game since then and the point that i made after game one was you know this is a team that certainly shoots a lot of threes and they can get hot but they don't have those guys especially with miritich continuing to be totally ineffective in this series they don't have a lot of guys who really blow you out of the water of like oh we just cannot leave that guy you know brogdon can be that sometimes but he doesn't have as versatile of a jump shot he's improved that a little bit in these playoffs but it's still not a guy who you're like oh man this guy is just give him a glimmer of daylight and it's going up and it's cash so that they are definitely capable of having you know not the greatest three-point shooting nights and they're 10 out of 31 tonight they've been on the wrong end in some of these games of the just volume three-point battle and that i think has been huge as well especially because they're they're doing so much to take away the paint in this series uh that toronto is able to get a ton of threes when they make them like tonight i mean it's pretty hard to lose i mean we we just saw it right here right i mean they shot 31 percent from two and they still won and they still had an efficient offensive night with a 112 offensive rating because of that three-point shooting right and that was a criticism that existed of the bucks during the regular season of something that might not translate and it's something i've said about portland's defense in the past that the shots they concede are more dangerous against the best team and this would theoretically be true in a series against the warriors should the bucks advance but i I do think that's an interesting question about you know like every defense is designed to take away certain things and that requires concessions if you could do everything defenses would and another part of this i mean the three-point shooting is is certainly important to talk about but when brooke lopez is not on the floor the bucks rim protection like the the defensive on-off numbers aren't completely ridiculous i mean the offensive ones incident interestingly there's a drop off there too or actually there's not in this series but so there is a defensive drop off overall and this was another game where Brook Lopez had a huge plus minus but I think it's a more it's a more intangible thing I'm sure somebody who could parse the data could see this but the Bucks just they don't have as much help and the Raptors know it so they're more aggressive on their drives they're getting to the line a little bit more and those minutes are really where they're making their hay and that makes total sense yeah and I thought that was exacerbated to some degree by the Bucks decision to switch everything particularly with Ilya 
Ilyasova in the game I thought that went awry because Toronto to their credit just started going right at Ilyasova and we said it in the last game Ilyasova wants to be a help defender he wants to step in and take charges if he's on ball he's just not going to be quick enough to stay with guys that largely and that proved to be the case particularly when he was in there against Kawhi Kawhi was seeking him out they had to overhelp a lot and the the overall decision to switch I thought it worked better with Lopez Lopez was amazing challenging shots like his reach really surprises guys uh until the until that fateful fourth quarter stretch that we talked about where Kawhi hit two iso threes on him uh, on step backs that were just backbreakers and then they went back to a conventional pick and roll defense after that I thought it actually worked pretty well uh particularly when they moved Giannis onto Marcus Gasol and put Lopez on Siakam so Siakam uh who again just could not buy a corner three in this game it seemed like for a long time that Giannis was able to be even more of a helper there um or I'm sorry he was able to cover more ground to cover Gasol and then they're able to have Lopez be more of a helper like their their first shot defense was pretty good down the end um but anyway the, the switching was just it was interesting maybe that was an overreaction they had stopped Toronto really well in the first three games with the pretty much the normal defense maybe the thinking was well Kawhi is limited offensively and so now we can switch it and we can just avoid giving up penetration to begin with and certainly I felt like they overhelped a little bit on some of these matchups uh particularly when it wasn't Kawhi Kawhi looked a lot better as well I I thought it just looked to have a little more rise on his jump shot a little more explosiveness so I'm not going to say that that decision to switch more was a failure or necessarily the reason that they lost I think it was a really an offensive loss for the box but it, it was not necessarily a decision that I thought was warranted it certainly wasn't like if you told me before the game oh they're going to switch everything I, I would have been a little surprised because I didn't see anything in the previous game that made me think that was required and you know we talked about this too Danny of Mike Busenholder is he going to change up right well he did play Lopez more minutes 32 and maybe needed to play him even more you know he was plus 11 right uh and we said hey if you got any more arrows in the quiver you better shoot him now because this is you know this could be the series this game despite the fact that they you know really outplayed the the Raptors probably through three games I thought they played better than them in game three and just some mistakes and Giannis falling out is what ultimately doomed them I don't know what did you think of that switching decision I didn't love it I thought that Milwaukee was doing a good enough job and Kawhi is is a different entity and and yeah maybe you want to handle things have different different rules for him but Toronto I I think that their their default kind of threat level isn't isn't as high and that was one of the big reasons maybe the biggest reason why I picked Milwaukee in this series and so I don't think switching takes them out takes Toronto out of their game as much as it can for certain other opponents like Boston I mean we saw Boston look like a different team because that's what switching turns them into Toronto I I haven't seen that as much and that is a concerning thing from the Bucks perspective because they're so good defensively that their default is I think works reasonably well and it's not like Toronto has fantastic personnel for just annihilating the dropback system you know yeah Kawhi notwithstanding he can make some he can make some pull-up jump shots he has you know going back to 16-17 when he was my per minute MVP that year but he just didn't play enough minutes he's been great on those sort of situations but if Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam let's say if they're initiating I'm not as freaked out about that and that has been a little bit of a concern for me it's just i think it's an overreaction a couple other things to note about the end of the game Giannis sprained his ankle after a missed eric bledsoe three that was pretty open could have tied it with about a minute 30 left
left. Bud then takes him out of the game, puts in George Hill as they're going down on offense when Kawhi Leonard uh, was shooting free throws and he made one out of two, put the Bucks up, or I'm sorry, the Raptors up 99-95. They cut it to two with a, a nice drive from Middleton. I think they really were trying to play no threes defense. And then Kawhi, they run the time down, misses a really difficult right shoulder fadeaway. This is the interminable shot clock violation, or was it not, review. Gasol gets a huge offensive rebound and Brooke Lopez looked to intentionally foul him. They called it as a loose ball foul, but it looked like Lopez was really shoving him with 34.7 left down two. You should not be intentionally fouling in that situation. But maybe if Giannis is in the game there, and I don't know if Bud took him out just because he wasn't sure if the ankle was okay or not or what, but maybe Giannis gets that defensive rebound. Uh, instead, Gasol, two ice free throws, puts him up four. And then I thought that they really erred with 34.7 left down two possessions to not call timeout and get the two for one. Yeah, I would agree with you because in that every I'm sorry, and Gasol actually missed that second. Yeah, he did, so that and that's why they didn't call the timeout. I'm guessing because they thought, hey, look, we have we have this advantage, we can push it. And Lopez got the ball to Bledsoe. Bledsoe pushed a little bit, but the problem is, if you get it at 35 seconds left, by the time you physically move the ball, unless you're going to throw like a full court bullet outlet, by the time you move the ball from A to B, you've basically lost the two for one. Yeah, and I think if there were 42 seconds left, then having him push up and try and get something quick would be a good idea. He, I thought, had a chance to take a layup and said he passed it out to Brogdon. And it was an awesome closeout from Siakam. He's one of the best closeout guys in the league. And Brogdon tries to rip it through and drive, hits Siakam's shin. I mean, that's the level of pressure that he was putting on him. Ball goes out of bounds. And there's another one of these reviews where for 46 minutes of the game, that's just going to be Milwaukee ball, right? Brogdon rips it through. It hits Siakam's leg. Brogdon loses control as a result. Doesn't actively touch it again. And the ball goes out of bounds. I'm convinced that if we reviewed every out of bounds call that was like a strip or contact caused it a guy to lose the ball out of bounds we would see like you know 80 percent of them end up being off off of the offense by the criteria that's applied right now it really does change the way the game is always called so i really think that that needs to be looked at remember uh the cj mccollum jamal murray play another play that changed that series denver wins that series otherwise in five probably if that doesn't enable portland to come back in that series where he knocks away from jamal murray near half court so yeah you shouldn't let yourself get stripped but it really does change the way the game a play like that would be called for 46 minutes out of the game and there's so many of those that it, i think it's something that needs to be looked at i agree with you and i think about when i was i i, I was a soccer referee i was never a basketball referee and, and they used to teach us kind of as a shorthand you know who who was the reason the ball went out of bounds and i think that's you know there are times that that rubric can screw you up too but i think that it leads to a more equitable result overall rather than whose pinky was on the ball or anything silly like that and so and and it is harder to review but in certain ways i think it's better that it's harder to review because then it's it is a judgment call and i i think with the way as you said the way video is used in this circumstance it leads to these weird results all right so we can let's zoom out a little bit now in this series there was the play where Cal Lowry didn't get fouled and threw it ahead to Siakam and he got it dunked, but Lowry was probably going to hit at least one of those free throws. More likely than not, he makes both. And, you know, Milwaukee was a massive underdog already at that point. It was a little odd that that foul wasn't called. And uh, Mark Davis certainly did not call very many fouls in this game. In particular, if you're trying to get a charge from Mark Davis when he was the baseline rough, you were not going to get much luck. A um, couple other just notes here before we talk about just the series in general. Uh, the Raptors grabbed five offensive rebounds in the fourth quarter after only having five through three quarters and that led to eight points all those just back breaking plays the Gasol one 
Leonard getting his own rebound off off the three-pointer were huge ones um Miritich only played nine minutes 0 for 3 0 4 from the field they couldn't defend when he was in there negative 11 Ilyasova was negative 10 in his 11 minutes I think we've now reached the point where Ilyasova is not really gonna be playable he's had one good game in this series and four bad ones but even went to Sterling Brown in the third quarter because he just didn't want to have to play Miritich Pat Connaughton he also struggled he was negative 12 I mean the, the bench turnaround in the series these last couple of games and Van Vliet in particular has been fantastic still can't make a two-point shot to save his life but he was open on a lot of threes and he came off the bench and played 37 minutes in this game which is pretty remarkable for a guy coming off the bench to play in regulation and Danny Green also only played 16 minutes in this one and he was negative 17 they started the first and second halves with him out there and they really got worked in both those moves I mean the Bucks you'll recall I think they were up like 11 to 3 at one point Toronto was getting some wide open threes not making him the Bucks were hitting theirs early uh so credit toronto for coming back instead of succumbing to the deluge like they did in game two something else i wanted to note about that you brought you brought up fed van fred van vliet's minute total three different raptors played the entire fourth quarter van vliet siakam and Kwai, and then Giannis got close i think i think the only rest he got was due to that ankle issue and kyle lowry i thought him being off the floor for as long i thought that might sink them just because he had he's been such an important part of their offense it did not you know Kwai helped really stabilize during those minutes and then I think I think he did look a little bit more fresh later on. And I think that did help. And Milwaukee was riding their guys hard, but they gave each of them at least a little break. I think the biggest takeaway you got to have in this series so far, though, if you're looking at it, hopefully Giannis's ankle won't be a major problem. He's sprained his ankle a number of times. He's starting to get like the Dirk Nowitzki ankles where he just sprains them all the time and that just, you know, he plays through it and he's okay. Hopefully that's the case. Maybe I'm not giving enough credit to how severe injury this is. Uh, also, by the way, Bucks 13-18 from the line. All five misses by Giannis, who is only four out of nine. He's missing the first free throw short basically every single time, it seems like. Uh, but I think the one of the biggest takeaways is that Kawhi has really outplayed Giannis in this series particularly after game one i mean number one leonard is guarding Giannis and causing him to play below average efficiency basketball for him and then leonard also has has been more productive offensively and more clutch and he's played more minutes so pretty hard to say i mean this is the presumptive mvp one danny larue ranked Giannis as the best player in the nba in march which i didn't think was insane or anything uh but Kawhi has clearly outplayed him and i think you know has clearly been the best player in the playoffs so far when especially when you look at his entire body of work and the competition that they've faced. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, you mentioned that I picked Giannis as the best player in the league. I don't think that this has exposed some sort of like fatal flaw. I mean, yes, his jump shooting and the free throw shooting to me has been the free throw shooting has been the far bigger issue. It's just that Kawhi is superhuman. (laughs) And, you know, Kawhi is forcing Giannis into more challenging looks. And I think Marcus All deserves some credit too because he's, he's flummoxed him with some steals and some strips as well. But Kawhi is doing some something that nobody else has yet. And I think that's important to note. Now, maybe it's playoff playoff mojo or something else, but I, I think it's just that Kawhi is that amazing. I've been disappointed with, at what Giannis has been able to do. And still, the, the Bucks haven't been spacing the floor well enough. Bledsoe actually did make him pay reasonably well. It was really more of his drive game that was a problem. Well, that in and his pull-up twos. I mean... Yeah, he was, was three for three on pull-up twos. And he I think he had a couple of threes as well. So he at least you know needed to be guarded a little bit more. But yeah, it did seem like the Bucks did not have much well, spacing. Like Lopez, for example, him only getting up four three-point attempts in 32 minutes. You know, And he's been more successful as a scorer inside the arc 
mark but maybe he needs to focus more really on spacing way out what went wrong for chris middleton tonight other than his continuing his spectacular passing with 10 assists well yeah i mean chris middleton how, how much money would you put on him finishing points short of a triple double like that's that's bonkers i mean he was two of nine from the field and and he's not being you know guarded by Kawhi most of the time i, I think it's been i don't i don't know i mean i i think that he wasn't getting the open corner threes that remember how that was a big part of yeah. game five and game four no i was thinking of the game five when he was like the or sorry yeah you're right game, game four yeah the, when he was one of the only bucks that was really doing well they were con- they were closing in on Giannis, and then they were conceding those middleton looks those evaporated entirely he only took two three-pointers and one of them was it wasn't a heave but it was the desperation three when they were down and that one that one went awry and toronto has done a good job kind of getting guys into his body as well and he and, and you, i think you know he, who's been guarding him kyle lowry yeah and lowry's done a good job and that's really opened up the strategy of putting siakam on blood so siakam i thought had a wonderful defensive game absolutely um, and he had I mean, three that, huge blocks including oh, the yeah. last one yeah the the one on Giannis's when i thought Giannis had just spun right past him that was awesome in, in particular um yeah but but i mean i think i think they do need to do a better job of getting middleton going uh especially when again they don't the other stuff they're doing in the half court is not working that well and and we know that chris middleton can get a size advantage against this toronto team that does a lot of switching on the perimeter and you know that he can back down he's passed it extremely well in this series um you know the pick and roll didn't go as well but certainly i think they can still try that against gasol i also thought that Giannis had a bunch of chances to finish as the role man tonight and just like fumbled the pass or missed layups like he actually got some pretty decent looks both from that and on the drive and i thought he just missed some shots that he normally would i don't know if he was worried about Kawhi's hand stripping him and he was quick shooting it but i mean he missed a lot of kind of bunnies for him you know this wasn't like game one of the celtic series where you know he's getting bumped out of his spot it like it was ones where you're like oh he's gonna make this when he shoots it and then it just misses on the completely opposite side two lulls for the milwaukee bucks ended with Giannis threes but there was one in the that second quarter when the Bucks scored two points in the first six seven minutes of the quarter Giannis breaks the ice with a three and then with four minutes to go it had gone up to a I think it was a seven point lead by the Raptors then Brogdon made a layup then then Giannis made a three to cut it all the way back down to a two-point margin with four minutes to go but both of those just came out of nowhere yeah Giannis's J actually was like one of the better things that he had going tonight uh so what do you think happens from here i fully respect toronto's half-court defense i think that a lot of that is real now the bucks have the capacity to make more threes than they did both in, in volume and in, in frequency they were 10 to 31 you could see that see both of those the numerator and the denominator ramp up a little bit and maybe they can get to the line a little bit more but toronto's the favorite in the series and for sure they haven't lost a game since Kawhi started being the primary match on Giannis. and if Danny green stops randomly picking up Giannis in transition like six times a game Giannis could have it he, he might struggle a little bit more from the field and that's another really striking thing that was more prominent in game game four than this one was just that Giannis making j- just dominating everybody else and then when Kawhi was on him just feeling a little bit out of sorts he did better I think in those but better is still a long way from the Giannis that was both of our MVPs this year it's certainly a concern for the Bucks that we've reached the oh shit we can't play some of these guys stage now you know that's that's a big problem Miritich Ilyasova Bud searching you know Connaughton hasn't really been a very effective and, and going on the road that's not a great sign for those guys now you know Miritich I think 
they do need to play him more i think they need to just hope that he finds his touch uh but you're right i mean you know is lopez i don't see him being able to play more than like 35 minutes a game and they really bud really extended most of these guys Giannis 39 minutes middleton 36 i mean this is about as much as he wants to play any of these starters at least you know that's his opinion maybe he does need to play these guys even more minutes uh so that that's a concern certainly though i mean the bucks could shoot it well from three they can get out and transition like they're fully capable of winning it and i think you know most te- home teams or teams with home court advantage down three two win 19 percent of the time i would give the bucks a significantly better chance of that if not you know over 50 percent chance that that eight and seven since 1984 would indicate and there's some other things that they can try strategically just going back to more of a their base defense i still would like to see more of Giannis posting up isoing on on the side he also just has to stand tall and be stronger on those plays when he's getting doubled in the post his reaction is to just dribble away towards the sideline which just makes all of your passes way tougher your momentum's going away from the hoop you can't get as much steam on those passes you can't see as well like he needs to just stand there hold on to the ball with his incredibly strong hands don't let anyone tie you up you know do some pivot moves and find some cutters find some shooters on the weak side be stronger instead of just retreating into the corner or retreating towards the sideline where the spacing's gonna be messed up the bucks just overall have to do a better job of spacing that's something that they made a big deal out of malik andros even wrote a a piece about how there's certain places that everyone's supposed to stand on offense and it seems like with bledsoe not really wanting to shoot it and george hill is always kind of cutting in there and lopez is rolling to the basket more instead of spacing out and they just maybe they need to kind of keep it more simple keep Giannis's reads a little bit bit simpler force a double team and we did have a little bit of success going at Kawhi. make marcus soul make a decision between lopez and going and helping on Giannis. those are the things i i think they could do and they, they're absolutely capable but certainly going on the road they are not favorites to win game six and it could be toronto's first nba finals berth oh the other thing the bucks need to stop doing is just fouling i mean they they are fouling on a lot of plays that are not shooting fouls and or plays where kyle lowry drives in and he's not going to finish at the rim and you still try and cut him off and then he just throws his shoulder into you and throws up some crap and gets to the foul and like they got to find a way to not get in the bonus so early in quarters like that was a, a big part of the pillar of their defense they're giving toronto some really free points i mean they fouled a little bit late but 31 free throw attempts for this group that's just too much to give up and a lot of those are kind of bullshit plays so th- that's a, another thing that they can focus in i mean that's not really a strategic adjustment but it's that really killed them in game three down the end and in game five but i mean it really doesn't it just seem so different danny like just watching the toronto offense like in games really one through three you're like how are these guys going to score they can't score and maybe it's just because they're hitting threes but the court just seems to have opened up so much more for them it is pretty striking and i mean maybe some of that is also just getting a little bit more in transition the bucks not being as set quite as often because i mean there it's sometimes hard to separate when two big developments happen at the same time all right we got to get to the news here but uh bucks fans know you guys aren't feeling too well i know uh in milwaukee people have been known to have a, a brewski or three you might be uh experiencing much like the bucks uh, a little bit of a hangover from this loss so let me recommend to you blowfish it's named that because that's the only name that hungover people could remember it is the only hangover product with a formulation that's recognized by the fda as safe and effective you don't have to plan ahead since you know we're probably not planning to be hungover but these you can take in the morning you drop two tablets into water and when the fizzing stops drink up it's a combination of aspirin and caffeine it works for about 15 minutes twice 
twice as fast as taking regular pills. The effervescence is much, much gentler on your stomach than taking pills as well. This is actual real ingredients made specifically for dealing with hangovers that result in part from a lot of the inflammation that's caused with alcohol. This helps you treat that. If you don't believe it, give it a try. It's got a money back guarantee. And right now they're offering our listeners 20% off at fourhangovers.com slash capspace. That's four as in for you, not the number four. Fourhangovers.com slash capspace will get you 20% off your first order of blowfish. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. So the All-NBA teams are out. We'll get to those in a second. But first, Danny, what are the numbers just in terms of what making it or not making it means for players in that seven or eight years of experience range who would or would not have been eligible for the designated player veteran extension or designated player veteran contract, as the case may be colloquially known as the Supermax? It is a, a massive financial difference between the two. I mean, so if you are getting max raises on a five-year contract, so we're comparing apples to apples, that it would be five years and $189.7 million for the 30 percent the the seven to nine year max that 189.7 jumps to 221.3 million if you can get the super yeah and, and the other difference too the idea behind how this was supposed to help retain players is that if you sign with another team now you're the most you can get is four years the most you can get is five percent raises rather than eight percent and so these players signing with another team this offseason for those to whom it applies now you're looking at only four years 140 million so you're starting salary is going to be about five and a half million dollars lower and then your build from there is going to be lower and you get an extra 50 million on the end of your contract in the last year 2023-24 if you're starting it right now or this coming off off season you've signed a five-year contract then you will offer the four-year deal so without further ado who are our all nba teams this season the first team is james harden and stephen curry at the guards Giannis and paul george at the forwards and Nikola Jokic at center. Yeah, so no surprises there. I had KD on the first team. Uh, I felt that Jokic maybe wasn't as good as Embiid on a per-play basis, but played a lot more plays than Embiid did. So uh, that was the only difference that I had there. You had Paul George on first team, right? I did. Uh, All right, who's second team then? Lillard and Kyrie Irving as the guards, Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard as the forwards, and then Joel Embiid as the center. Yeah, and Lillard, if you missed that, we talked about the implications for him and Portland in light of Chris Haynes reporting, because it was fake that he was going to make an all-NBA team, that a four-year Supermax extension would be on the table from Portland and that Lillard is expected to agree to that. But we talked a lot about that uh, on the previous program. How about third team? Now we get into some differences of opinion that are more prominent. The top point getter on this group was Russell Westbrook. And then the bottom one who still made third team was Kemba Walker. Then the forwards, Blake Griffin and LeBron James and Rudy Gobert. So I guess our only differences were were on the the guard line, but... Neither of us had Russ on our team at all, and we we each deliberated on various things. I think we did. We both end up with Drew Holiday. I know I did. Yeah, and yeah. he didn't he didn't get particularly close. I think he only got like one vote. And Kemba getting it. So so that what turned out to be the last spot because Russell Westbrook ended up getting a lot more points than I had expected, and I think he deserved that. Left 
one spot functionally for Kemba Walker, Bradley Beal, and Clay Thompson, two of whom are hitting unrestricted free agency this year, and then all three of them would have theoretically been designated veteran eligible for a contractor extension, depending on the circumstance, and only Kemba Walker gets it. Now, Walker hitting free agency, as you mentioned. Beal, he still had two years remaining on his contract, so he could have signed the same idea that John Wall did and that Lillard is going to, the one that doesn't even kick in until two years from now. But he didn't make it, but he could still make it next year and be eligible, or even make it the year after that and be eligible as a free agent. Also of note, Rudy Gobert, by making it and making Defensive Player of the Year last year, he is not eligible now because he only has six years of experience for players with seven or eight years of experience, but because he made something that qualified two years in a row, and he could also very well win Defensive Player of the Year again this year. In fact, I believe he's the favorite to do so. He now will automatically be eligible to sign a five-year deal next offseason. He's another one of these kind of borderline cases where, oof, you know, do you want to sign him to this? Now, also worth noting, this is, I think could come into play for Walker as well, if in fact he wants to remain in Charlotte. The designated player veteran contract or extension, it has, the only stipulation on it is that it has to be five years and it has to start at 35% of the salary cap. You could have non-guarantees on the end if you wanted to, not player option or, or not team option. You could have a annual raises that are less than 8%, which is the most you can be offered. And obviously that $221 million is based on that 8% raises. You could even have declines if you wanted to uh, as well. So that negotiation could be there. It's been, nobody has really tried that yet. Yeah, I thought, uh, th- I thought that might come into play theoretically with Clay Thompson. I should also note though that it's, one one small correction, it just has to start above, if it, in this circumstance, it has to start above 30% oh, yeah. and be Sorry, b- between yeah. 30 and 35. I actually was, so yeah, I broke down. I tweeted down, that today. I yeah, should probably have done it. I, I broke down the Kemba Walker situation for the Athletic back yeah. in March, and that was something I speculated was the idea that maybe they could give him more, but not that much more. And right. it does give, I mean, so, so now with this, kind of like we talked about with, with Damian Lillard recently, there are two choices here. One choice is Charlotte's. How much do they offer? How deep do they go down this well? And whatever that is on the table, how does Kemba Walker handle that? Now, it could be a more layered negotiation, you know, going going back and forth and all that kind of stuff. But I do think at a basic level, this, de- this decision is more binary of like, how far do you go? And then Kemba Walker saying, is that enough? So we'll talk more about this when we do Charlotte's offseason. But if Kemba starts at the full 38.2 million and assuming the inevitable player option options, opt-ins I should say the Hornets would start next season with before they even completely fill out their roster this is with 12 players including their draft pick 11.1 million dollars over the tax and with the tax payment of 19.1 million dollars so let's say they do offer him the supermax now you're also going to have to either stretch guys or give up assets to move some of these salaries the bad ones uh they're not good by the way Batum Biombo Marvin Williams Kid Gilchrist all all of those guys making 13 million or more batum has another year left after that cody zeller makes 14 i mean it's, it's just amazing how much money they're paying for how utterly mediocre they are so you have to imagine there's no way they're going to pay the tax so now are they either going to stretch a bunch of these guys and hurt their future that way or are they going to give up a future first round pick or their first round pick this year so not only are you doubling down on your current mediocrity by playing walker this huge contract which will go out for five years and you know he's not even going to be worth 38 million next year and all likelihood not to mention when he's 33 34 years old making 50 million a year but you're really tripling down because you're also 
taking away future assets as well so this is if the hornets wanted to re-sign walker and are hell-bent on doing that this is a disaster for them you know they they could have maybe made you know just by simply stretching biombo if it was just the 32.7 million to start with for the normal max they probably could have jiggered it to get under the tax without having to do much more than that now if they have to offer this much it's not a good idea but i mean to me they have no business re-signing him anyway they desperately need to rebuild they're very unlikely to make the playoffs next year and if they do who cares because they'll just get completely obliterated with the top of the east looking like a monster lately so maybe this is a blessing in disguise because they'll just finally figure out that oh yeah we gotta move on from this guy even though it hurts alternatively it could be a blessing in disguise for walker as a clarification mechanism because if you go oh my god the only the way they can bring me back is gonna kill this team then yeah. you say well crap do i want to go back to that and and i think that's an interesting idea but we can also let's talk a little bit about some of the other adjustments that happened because of this carl anthony towns did not make it which means that he will stay at the normal 25 percent max for his previously agreed to extension it just would have been a big escalator that is paralleling what happened with joel Embiid last year you know it's the same situation yeah. where it could have it could have spiked it wasn't the expectation preseason, but then they played well enough where they got into the mix and then the other really important one on a not yet negotiated deal for me is clay thompson and for clay there has been a lot of chatter about the warriors needing to basically to 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 go to make a, a reasonable offer to you know max or damn close to it and this makes it a lot easier for them to do that financially you know for the repeater tax and everything else i have a piece that's come that will be out by most the time most people listen to this at the athletic talking about it and so for me what it gives the warriors is a less catastrophic you know like long-term path to keeping somebody that they want to keep in the first place and clay is a, a an interesting example of kind of the idea of the supermax because it, it seems to me like it was created to give players a reason to stay that if for whatever reason that situation is less desirable than maybe something on the table maybe the money that difference in money covers the gap but with Clay, I don't think that was necessarily the story. It was more about did you did you offer what you could, and now what they can't offer is significantly less. We'll turn now to the Warriors' present situation. They got back on the court today after two off days at the end of the Portland series. Still a week to go until the NBA Finals would start in either Toronto or Milwaukee. They did do an injury release, so it looks like, remarkably, that DeMarcus Cousins may be more likely to return than Kevin Durant. Cousins practiced for the first time since he tore his left quad way back in Game 2 in the Clippers series, and they said that they anticipate him returning at some point during the NBA Finals, but if he practiced and he's, they've got a whole week to get him ready you imagine it might even be possible he'd be ready for game one we'll have to see what his role might be him posting up against Marcus Gasol Marcus Gasol is probably gonna lock him down in that respect but certainly I think the Warriors will be able to use all the scoring they can get and Toronto is not the sort of team that's gonna kill DeMarcus defensively so I think he can actually end up being an asset to this Warrior team in particular because they are so limited on the wings and in terms of just the number of bodies that they have so just giving them some more minutes against Toronto and I don't know if he's going to be a difference maker but at least giving them someone who can soak up some minutes and score a little bit on the second unit but well and scoring a little bit becomes more important with what I thought was the more surprising part of this which is oh god that Kevin Durant hasn't even been cleared to begin on court activities yet and the Warriors there are some some faint echoes of what happened with LeBron James where I'm trying to remember in LeBron's case if they stated day to day right right yeah like they like 
like where it, it sounded like they're like, oh, it's a mild calf strain. And now look, this this is looking like, and Anthony Slater tweeted this out, it's looking like a grade two in terms of the timeline here. And he, not only is the not yet cleared, but the, it was it was that same nebulous terminology of like the, to get him back during the finals. Getting him back during the finals. He they will, are hopeful of him returning. Re- returning during the finals. Now. He will be reevaluated before they begin, but they're not playing the Portland Trailblazers again. They're playing one of the three best teams in the league who is going to come off a series against one of the other three best teams in the league. And Kevin Durant is an exceedingly important part. And remember, if Kevin Durant misses games or is limited or both, depending on the timeline, the early games of that are going to be on the road. They're going to be at this other team. And this is huge for the potential NBA final. Yeah. And we'll see with, with a calf injury, it's one of those things where you can probably re-injure it very easily, but you can also, if it's like kind of bothering you, you can kind of gut through it. So maybe if they're down in the series, then they might bring him back a little bit earlier in desperation. And, you know, he can at least stand outside and shoot some jumpers and give him some minutes, even if he's limited. Maybe you could see that. But yeah, I found it very concerning for them that he's not even cleared to do on-court work yet. That probably means even that he's still experiencing some pain if he tries to, to do any movement. So that's, uh, he'll make it an NBA Finals really interesting. Probably well, make it more exciting if he's yeah. not there, but. I, I mean, d- tighten up the margins a little bit. And remember, you hear a lot of times with injuries, oh, if it was the finals, they're going to play. Or, you know, like it, that's sort of a circumstance. This is the finals. you know. So it, it's not game seven of the finals, but it is there. And so, I mean, you expect that if he can play, he will be on the floor. And this timeline makes it feel like maybe he can, at least at the beginning of the series. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like based on this timeline, no way he plays in the first game. That's my instinct as well. Yeah. Well, I've been waiting a long time for this one. Basically, since I first started seeing those highlights of Zion on Duke's Canadian tour over the summer, and I was like, how is RJ Barrett considered the number one pick in this draft? This guy is absolutely insane. I saw one one dunk and one rebound, and I'm like, in this pretty crappy draft class, at least as far as I was familiar with it, like, how is this guy not going to go number one? And obviously, I wasn't expecting that he would go on to have one of the great freshman seasons of all time and you know maybe be the second most hyped prospect maybe the most hyped prospect coming out of college this decade with anthony davis probably being the only other competition i think for really getting into zion was fascinating for me just because there's never really been anyone like him i would say and that could be good there's also some risk associated with that because you can't be entirely sure how his skill set is going to translate particularly defensively i would say but obviously when you throw in the statistical translations as well what he was able to do in what probably really was not a great system for him at duke and with no spacing next to him he obviously is uh, a generational type of talent at a minimum well yeah and you and i saw zion back in 2016 at adidas nations i believe he was a junior in high or finishing his junior year of high school at the time yeah you know i wish i had seen him more there you oh i watched watching the college guys more you were watching the high school no no i watched him play three games then and 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 bits of other ones i was fascinated by zion and it was fun because he was on this team of of the younger guys it wasn't on the older one with deandre ayton and Hamid diallo and a number of other guys but and trevon duvall but what i found striking about zion at that point he hadn't was that the the raw materials were so interesting i mean he played this year at 280 285 so that's like what lebron is playing at now in terms of weight but he has this 
electric vertical leap, and he's a better horizontal mover. First of all, he's a better horizontal mover now than he was then, but it's just so, he, he's so unusual physically. And then what I think was the most intriguing part of it to me was I had these kind of preconceptions, even having watched Duke a few times during the course of the year, about what Zion's game was and what where he would succeed at the next level. And he really surprised me, particularly with the ball in his hands. Yeah, and that's what where it's really gets completely ridiculous as a transition force he's going to be unstoppable grabbing goes his speed when he tries to accelerate is just ridiculous whether that's running the floor with the ball the ball does not really slow him down he can move so fast yet stay under control and still change direction his handle is extremely tight for a player of his ilk i mean when you talk about a guy who's a pure power forward maybe even can play some center he's got one of the best handles for that type of player that we've seen and beyond that which is important place to start his judgment with the ball in his hands is pretty good you know he uh, didn't run i mean this, this is not going to be a bold statement he did not run a ton of pick and roll as the ball handler i think it was 20 29 possessions well actually that is uh more than triple what he ran <laughs> as the roll, roll man, man which is unbelievable yeah, seven seven possessions as the pick and roll roll man which is remarkable for a bunch of different reasons but what i was most impressed with in terms of zion on when he was running those pick and rolls i watched all of them i think i watched all of them twice was his patience and it was not a player who is going from point a to point b who is using it as means to an end he was seeing what the defense gave him and yeah i mean i I still don't love his pull-up jump shot and we'll talk about his jumper a lot later but that open-endedness is not something you see first of all from most 18 year olds but second of all you never see it from bigs and guys who play like bigs at really any age like it's 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 such a different mentality and it was shocking yeah and i think it's really to me that dribble game that face-up game that's going to make him this uh, ridiculous force and and we'll get to player comps which i think i think those are important i don't go in for those that much but i think they're important to think about okay how can you use this guy at the next level uh a lot of his scoring you know ben taylor talks about scalability a lot of his scoring really comes off the ball he's an excellent cutter obviously uh, as an alley-oop threat he's absolutely ridiculous offensive rebounding you know that scales uh, with basically anyone and considering how much time he spent on the perimeter 13 percent offensive rebounds that's really good he is an amazing out of area offensive rebounder now the shooting is a big question mark we'll talk uh, more about that but then transition that's another thing where he, he i mean they ran some plays for him where you know they try and bring him out of the corner and hand off they do pick and roll every once in a while they try and post it up but it wasn't i would more of his points to me came just off a scramble situations transition offensive rebound cuts then it was all right we're gonna throw you the ball and let you go to work i thought they frankly should have done that a lot more maybe at the end of the gonzaga game for example yeah but, or or basically anytime rj barrett had the ball creating an isolation <laughs> like the gonzaga game uh yeah well, do, you think, he, do you think yeah, we should ahead. take a beat to just go through his stats for this season just uh yeah that would probably be a good point actually yeah, we're, yeah we're, okay we're, we're we're always a little disjointed on the first one of these that we do we're not quite as organized but yeah i, I think that's pretty important it, it the best description I have for his for his stats this year is hilarious. Like it's just at that level. So for the full season, 
40.8 PER, 70% true shooting on 29% usage, 14.9 assist rate, 12.8 turnover rate. So those are both, I mean, I'm cool with both of those. I mean, the assist rate's very good for a guy his size. The turnover rate, justifiable for a guy with his assist rate. And then the the counting stats, 23 points, 9 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 steals, 1.8 blocks, 68 field goal percent field goals. And then the threes, we'll talk about that. He was 24 of 71, which is 34% on 2.2 per game and 64% from the line on 6.2 free throws. Well, and that means he shot 75% on two pointers. That is just an absolutely batshit comical. And it's not just dunks. Like even if a guy was basically just doing the DeAndre Jordan shot profile, that would still be really impressive. And it wasn't that. Also worth noting briefly that his efficiency stats were just as good And if you just narrow out conference play. Now, Duke plays a very ambitious non-conference play relative to a lot of other teams, but that's something I use as a filter for certain squads just to be like, okay, so he was just as good against the ACC as he was against everyone else. Yeah, some of the situational stats are are also preposterous. His offensive rebounding, I mentioned that that he has that pretty good uh, offensive rebound rate, especially considering what his role was, but he averaged 1.5 points per possession off of every offensive rebound like he pops back up so quickly and puts it back he gets these nasty tip dunks like that is an insane number as far as just what you like actually converting on the second chances that he's creating post-ups 1.3 points per possession on 77 post-ups that is the largest number i can ever recall seeing basically like at any level i mean that's just half court post-ups just completely insane and and if you include passes it only goes down to 1.1 and i I, he had some good Good passes out of the post as well sure yeah no his passing is is excellent uh transition obviously just a, a devastating finisher there as well and, and then when you consider the context in which he played too if you watch that central florida game where they put the seven six taco fall on duke's point guard trey jones that'd give you kind of an idea of what he was dealing with in terms of having absolutely no spacing defenses loading towards him to a ridiculous degree he only played 20% of his minutes at center and those lineups were absolutely devastating offensively and didn't have too much of a drop off defensively either uh you know cam reddish was kind of hit or miss barrett would take threes he, he wasn't a great three-point shooter trey jones was by the end of the year was scared to shoot wide open corner threes he usually played with another center next to him as well so that was like their lineup you know they really had so little spacing and yet to still do what he did was quite remarkable yeah and then we mentioned mentioned too just a, an indication of their lack of spacing was the fact that he only finished seven possessions as a role man in pick and roll all year i mean that's just considering what his gifts are his speed how quickly he can get to the rim his elevation i mean you would think he would have just that many dunks out of pick and roll on an alley-oop and but you know there was no spacing so they didn't run a ton of it um well so yeah. let's talk about his passing for a bit I-, I thought it was more more functional you know like he didn't make a ton of amazing reads but I thought that he very rarely made like really bad decisions as a passer and he was able to see the re- the reasonable pass you know like more of what you expect for a big man not something crazy like what Jokic does or anything like that and I think that's that's first of all I think that's a good place to start and I could absolutely see him getting better than that because you could see the vision on certain plays in the open court like he had this unbelievable bounce pass I think it was to RJ Barrett yeah that was you're sitting there going oh shit like maybe this is in there they just did don't have the opportunity because of spacing and everything else so i i'm i'm optimistic on him as a passer
roster, though I didn't see a ton of that, you know, crazy stuff on film. He's And he's not going to be, you know, I don't think he's going to be running the offense like James Harden or something crazy like that. So that functional level is totally fine. And if he could get better, and I think he can, then that helps a lot. I think for a college freshman big man, again, for a guy with his physical profile, I, I'm higher on it than you. I thought it was really absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I thought his drive and kick game was really good, you know, when there actually were shooters that were open. Uh, out of the post when he was double team, I thought he made the right decision. You know, if you compare him to, say, like DeAndre Ayton, right? DeAndre Ayton, you know, it was someone whose passing was, people talked about it as being underrated just due to the type of player that he was. But I thought DeAndre would kind of, he was a willing passer, but not necessarily an incisive passer a lot of the time. Whereas Zion, I felt like when he got double teamed, he would instantly make the decision to the right guy, you know, and, and again, he didn't post up as much and get double teamed as much as maybe you might've expected. He was getting a lot more of his points, not just on throw the ball to Zion type of plays. The transition passing, I think was really outstanding at outlets, it had some really nice outlets. There was one of the Gonzaga game where he throws it 65 feet ahead to RJ Barrett, which was in between two guys. It was just really a fantastic pass. So I, I think he can get to be, you know, one of the better passing bigs in the NBA, you know, not Jokic level because he's the greatest of all time, but I think he can be, you know, not LeBron type of level where he's just diming guys up and pick and roll all over the floor. But I think I will eventually trust him to make very good decisions when he's got two guys on him. And I think he's quite willing to do that. I didn't see hardly any selfishness from him in the games that I watched. And this gets into the single most fascinating question with Zion Williamson for me, which is who the hell do you put on him? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Uh, and maybe we can answer that a little bit later when we kind of talk more about what, what his skills are. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's something that, that I, I've been thinking about a lot too. Uh, let's get into the, to the nitty gritty a, a little bit more here. Uh, and in, in the post, obviously he's got that 285 pound frame, huge butt. You throw it into him when he's fronted. He's such a quick jumper and he's so strong that fronting him is very difficult to do. You can just lob it to the rim. I did think he could have shown more effort as far as really trying to carve out space down there because he has these perimeter skills sometimes he was content to just go out and get the ball on the perimeter instead of posting up uh but i think he can really be devastating there trying to deny him the ball is going to be a problem you're going to have to play behind him and i think he can get very very good position especially off any kind you know against anyone who's not a center basically i think he can carve out a lot of space and then the other thing i really liked about him in, in the post is anytime he caught the ball with any kind of an advantage just the guy went for the steal or just was kind of on his hip or something he just goes immediately and he's so explosive that any sort of advantage he's able to just bust right through that widen it and he's on top of the rim before you realize what's even happened um now his spin moves cover a ton of ground in the post he also his pivots he's strong enough that you're if he up fakes you're not going to knock him off that pivot his drop step going to his right shoulder just covers an incredible amount of ground uh now when you actually can stay in front of him it gets a little more dicey for him especially if he's going to have nba size on him at the college level you know bigs kind of just deactivate they don't want to foul they just put their hands up and he could kind of jump into guys with his right shoulder double pump and and 
that's that may work on some guys in the nba because you can just he can almost get his shoulder right into the guy's chest as he's going up and then he can't really jump and create some space that way it's not pretty but it, it created space and he also has very nice touch around the rim but he doesn't have much of traditional post moves now some would argue that jump hooks turnaround jumpers those are kind of inefficient uh but he doesn't really have any kind of a jump hook game at all he's reliant on getting past his man going through guys kind of similar to the way blake griffin started out with his post game but he's so strong you know i expect him to be able to just physically overwhelm guys getting to the basket with nba spacing but against guys who really have enough size to stand up to him which are not gonna be many uh even at this point he's not really doing a jump hook he's not really getting extension he also is extremely right shoulder dominant 34 times in the post he turned right shoulder five he turned left shoulder so he doesn't i think his right hand can come around you know he's shown some ability to finish at the rim right-handed uh, on the drive you know he's better than a lot of lefties in that regard he's a, a good right-handed dunker he likes jumping off of his right or off of his left foot as a driver uh but the traditional skill level in the post with any kind of hook game turnaround jumper is non-existent and generally players like that don't develop that type of game uh and, and he doesn't have the longest arms either probably should have mentioned this six seven in shoes six eleven wingspan yeah and uh eight seven standing reach I mean, all of those are very low for a modern power forward obviously he makes up for it with the girth and the explosiveness and the speed but uh he is starting from a disadvantage uh in terms of his height and length should we get into his jumper a little bit uh oh we should also mention he doesn't even turn 19 until july 6th yeah so so he'll be drafted at 18 play at 19 yeah he's younger than uh a lot of guys who come into the draft probably i mean most guys have already turned 19 by the time of the draft so that's uh and sometimes even the year before they will you know guys who are coming out after their freshman year yeah let's talk about that jumper now so i'm not super comfortable with it i i think that it's i'm not a believer i I think it's going to be a weakness his entire career it's more of a it's kind of like a semi like his three-pointer is more of like a semi set shot it's a bizarre it's kind of because it doesn't have a ton of lift on it It's, it's not really that kind of mechanically and now i might actually argue that zion would be better eventually going to kind of a marcus esque set shot just if his if his the lower body stuff isn't as sound as it could be maybe you go in that direction but yeah i mean he did the the numbers were you know were solid on it 24 of 71 that's 34 percent. but also you see the 64 at the free throw line like i i don't buy it all the way and theoretically that is a limitation depending on how the team wants to structure the offense in terms of putting the ball in his hands a lot on the perimeter is that will teams just go under on all that stuff but what zion can do is he can attack teams going under on that by just bullying the ever-loving crap out of them getting to the basket yeah yeah he's the type of guy where it's like you let him get ahead of steam um it's kind of over now i mean i i could see him getting to the point where like his jumper is kind of like Giannis's is now he does deserve a lot of credit because in high school he was basically a total non-shooter and he's at least at the point where he's taking these but you know these are that's 34 percent of pretty wide open shots it's extremely flat it's extremely inconsistent he will have some very very bad misses left right short way long you know there's not much consistency he kind of turns his body way to the right shoots it off his shoulder his right elbow is like way out to the side it's not a good shooting for him he's gonna need if he's gonna be a shooter in the nba at all at the nba line which you know i don't know if is necessary but if he's gonna be that he's gonna need to just completely rework the jump shot like there's there's no two ways about it i mean it's such a flat ball it's such a low release point i do have drive derive a little bit of encouragement from some of his two-point jumpers he doesn't take many there's not much reason for him to take many but he showed the ability to at least you know you mentioned 
mentioned how his, his three is kind of a set shot he showed the ability to at least like step in to a two-point jumper off the dribble get it off pretty quickly and you know he didn't make many of those or take many of those but you know i think just to be able to hit a 17 footer when they're really sagging off of him is something that it could be helpful and maybe he can get to that point i'm, I'm not going to foreclose on it and you know, at least he's not so bad of a free throw shooter that i mean he, he's bad enough that like if he's got a dunk you're going to follow him but he's not so bad where you will be like a hack a candidate or, or anything like that so i think that that at least is encouraging but i mean if he's i don't expect it to be an asset i don't expect him to shoot three nba three-pointers we've been surprised by some people before certainly and he's worked on it and he has improved so there's some reason for optimism but i mean i expect him to be sort of a at best Giannis level of shooter blake griffin very early in his career blake is one of the few guys who's actually you know has overcome having like terrible form in their jump shot but again i, I blake is very very much the exception for players of this sort of profile right especially it, when you consider how broke his form it, and it might go without saying but if he ever does get that then good luck world so he obviously is really explosive as a finisher around the room when he can dunk it he can dunk it from some crazy angles one foot in transition likes to jump off that left leg what do you think of his overall touch around the basket though on nanda it's good i don't think it's superlative but i mean he hasn't needed for it to be so and he's been such an amazing vertical athlete the entire time i've ever seen him play so i i think that it'll get a little bit better but it's not like a standout attribute for me with him. yeah again i, I i'm a little higher on it actually i, th- I think and to shoot 75 percent, a lot of these plays are pretty contested with the lack of spacing that's true that they had you know i thought he he showed pretty good ability on those bankers maybe in in the four to six foot range uh you know nothing outside of that obviously really you know no floater game or anything uh like that the other thing i want to talk about too is just how awesome he is as a driver and dribbler the number of changes of direction that he can put together in a row are really fantastic right like someone's like Giannis Eurostep or spin move he's gonna get going one way and then change direction once whereas Zion if he gets cut off the first time he's able to go quickly between the legs behind the back again the fact that he's always in control and also the speed with which he attacks as well if you throw it to him and he's doesn't have a guy right in front of him he's on top of the rim just immediately he can blow by guys so quick the help just can't get there in time and those jump stops where he changes direction are awesome too his jump stops are ridiculous they they don't call travels on those in ncaa as much as they do at the nba level where you got to make sure your feet come down at the same time but i think he'll be able to do that um another thing that i noticed they used to have this event we had to do it in elementary school it was part of the olympics like back in the early 1900s called the broad jump where you basically from a dead stop would jump off of two feet and try to just jump as far as you could like he would be like the world record holder in that event like, it, he, it's he, unbelievable it's, un, it's ridiculous i could imagine being a pretty good triple jumper too but i mean the broad jump it is like his leg power is is insane and whether it applies vertically or laterally it's it's really impressive and do you want to get into do you want to wait for defense to talk about his role or do you want to do it now like well it, let's talk about the defense side okay. because some including mike schmitz of course who i really really respect has been talking a lot about his ability as a small ball center the switch ability i think he can maybe get there you know he has very quick feet obviously more in a straight line to me than sliding side to side agreed um but i actually in watching all of the times both the, in just game action and then the synergy isolations where his numbers were pretty good but you know there's not that many great isolation players in college basketball i thought that when guys that tried to attack him off the dribble more often than not they're able to get by him pretty cleanly i, I, I felt that way i didn't think he was really stoked 
stoning guys that often. Yeah, I had the same concern. And for me, something I, I wrote in my notes was just that the the speed and skill upgrade at the NBA level from guards could cause him some real problems. Now, Zion will become a better defender than he is right now, to be sure. But the jump from like average ACC starting point guard to NBA starting point guard is massive because you think about how few jobs that is. You're not only getting the best college players, but the best international players. There are a lot of lot of guys coming out there and it's a huge jump and and what what you're looking for sometimes on that let's say like switchability is how much how well can that defender keep the offensive player away from the thing he wants most and what concerned me a little bit was Zion in those circumstances there were a few standout possessions there were a lot there were a few but there were others where it didn't seem like he was able to do that whether that was you know maybe he didn't know exactly because college only play a team maybe twice that he didn't necessarily know or that he just didn't couldn't get to exactly the spot he needed to there were a few of those and it's like like against let's say like boston college or something like that this wasn't by point guards that i know by name and there are only like two of those so in college right now so that's it's a little bit concerning now i my my threshold for him as a switchable guy is more of the make do type of switch rather than somebody who i think could thrive in that sort of system like maybe jaron who i like better as a switching guy than zion but i do think he can reach that basic threshold maybe not against the best of the best but i'm okay with that yeah, and it could make him a little bit of a difficult fit if you want to play him at center on offense, if he can't be that guy. And I th- the lack of elite length also, you know, compared to someone like you mentioned, Jaron or Draymond Green, where, you know, if guys cross him over, he do- is a quick jumper. He can load up quickly, but if he's not in a position where he can really get close enough to the guy or get some momentum going towards him to get a shot block or, or a contest, you know, the short arms are going to be a little bit limiting, you know, uh, switching off to a, a especially bigger players so I, th- I think he has pretty good tools as a one-on-one guy but there's a possibility and he also works hard i think he wants to be really good like the the overall motor if we haven't said it enough already i think is fantastic good kid hard worker all of those intangible reports are well and, and also you can see examples of his hard work in the growth that he has made since we saw him early on like th- sure. this to me there's a fundamental difference there with him and let's say somebody like andrew wiggins who wiggins was an amazing physical talent when he was 17 and and then at, at Kentucky, uh, sorry, Kansas, you there, there were questions about how much he had really grown and that team was a little bit weird and, and Bill Self and everything like that. But with Zion, I've seen it. So I'm not as skeptical that he can continue to grow because he already has. Yeah. Something I wanted to talk about. So Zion had a his steal rate, 3.9%. Very happy with that. I mean, uh, well, that's yeah, his, I mean, I think it's the second highest among bigs in, I forgot whose database said this. It might've been KP other than Nerland's Noel. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, and that's a real strength. And and when you watch them, it's he has some nice anticipatory steals, and then some where he's just faster to the ball than damn near anybody else. Like if it's yeah. a slow pass, if it's a lazy pass, he's there and he's gone. Like he and, and so that's a, that's a really a, a notable positive. I agree with you. We talked about defensive rebounding earlier. Well, well, more on the steals. Sure, he that incredible closing speed that he has was evident. A lot of gambles, yes. to be sure, but a lot of successful gambles, obviously. And then once he gets the ball, you know, it's lights out in transition, going the other way. Another thing where he was very successful was aggressively switching out onto guys and just going after their dribble in a way that they didn't expect with just so much speed closing onto them that they would try to back off and he would just eat up that space before the guy could even dribble again and steal it from him i didn't see that many steals as far as like get great hands yes strips, that was what i was, what I was gonna go to thing. yeah and and that ties in with something that's a little bit concerning for me with zion defensively and a little bit offensively is that he seems more to me like like an elite 
complete reactor rather than an anticipator. Yes. And it's it's true that if you are as fast as he is, that he can get away with more. But when you look at, you know, we're right in the conference finals right now. When you look at those best of the best players, and not all of them were like this when they were 18, 19, but anticipation is what really separates at the NBA level. You can talk about Draymond Green or Andre Wadala or Rudy Gobert, I think, does a nice job defensively at, at, at times. And guys develop anticipation as well. They get used to the league and everything else. And that's a little bit concerning because what happens if you're a reactor rather than an anticipator is that the rapid improvement in player quality from the NCAA to the NBA t- lowers your window. Those players are faster, they're smarter, they're they're moving better, they're shooting from further away, and so everything has to be faster. And that's why anticipation works is more valuable because if you're ahead of it, then that doesn't matter as much. And so I'm a little bit concerned about that, but I'm not super freaked out. I'm less freaked out about that, let's say, than DeAndre Ayton, where I was way more concerned yeah. because he's not as good a reactor as I am. Well, and yeah, you don't see him, and again, this is, we're talking about a guy who's turning 19 on July 6th. So yeah. there's certainly the potential to develop this. I can't off the top of my head recall what someone like Draymond Green looked like defensively as a freshman. Yeah, considering he stayed four years at Michigan State too. Right. And so, but I think if you're going to say he's going to be the next coming of Draymond Green, I mean, there's only one Draymond Green and that's that's for a reason. Yeah, Zion can jump higher than him, but he doesn't have the same wingspan, doesn't have the same hands. And at least as of now, could develop it maybe. And he, I think he's going to try and be engaged. He's not putting out fires before they start. He's not pre-rotating. We didn't see verticality plays where he's forcing a miss at the rim without blocking the shot. I think given his broad chest and how high he can jump, I think he'd be very effective as a verticality guy, but he wasn't pre-rotating, getting in a position there's a lot of plays where he wouldn't move at all and then and also because that it's like this herculean effort to get over there and sometimes he does and i think you know he's going to have a ton of highlights defensively i think both with the steals and the blocks but the everyday day-to-day could get there but clearly is not exhibiting that level of anticipation as a help defender and so the guy that i i have trouble with guys who are playing the four in college and then are i mean could play the five in the pros and so i kept thinking about comparing him which is which is not unfair comparison to Jaron Jackson defensively because Jaron was playing the four at Michigan State and he's just so much better in terms of like closing out space and understanding how much he needs needs for a closeout so if he's helping for for Jaron if he was kind of moving into the lane he knew how much space he needed and how much time he needed to get out to the guy Zion ball watches a little bit sometimes he wanders and I think all that stuff if he's stuck on a on a stretch four he'll kind of be glued to that guy yeah and and not be able to help and so those 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 are not damning. Those are not catastrophic, but they are reminders that there are levels here. And I yeah, think I mean, that- you're asking the guy to hold up as a six-seven dude as an NBA center, and there's a reason there's not that many guys who can do that. There's a reason six-seven is considered undersized for an NBA center. It's often considered undersized for a power forward. I mean, and yeah. Zion, his functional size is very different, not only because because of his crazy the ground he can cover and his vertical and everything like that, but there's only so much that it can do. And so I'm a little bit concerned about that and then that ties in I'm a little bit conflicted on how to feel about his block rate so 5.8% not great but remember he's not playing center at all 20% I mean that's functionally not at all yeah and so he's that I checked compared to some other you know kind of his, historical power forwards that I like that were high-end prospects so like he's way better than and these are going to be damning because it's not supposed to be praised way better than like Derek Williams and Anthony Bennett and those type of guys and then I just brought up Jaron Jackson 5.8% for 
for Zion, 14-3 for Jaron Jackson, but Jaron Jackson's a monster, so you don't need to necessarily compare him there. So I'm I'm okay with it, but when you think about his physical gifts, maybe he can do better, but I think that's another sign that as an overall defensive force, he might be more of a complementary piece, and that's fine with how damn good his offense is. It's just different, you know, like, and we'll get into some comparisons a little bit later, but when trying to think about his, you know, like, what is his niche on both ends of the floor? To me, where you're going offensively is, or defensively is more like good enough to ceiling of very good, not like excellent or top notch. If we're talking about him being a power forward defensively, you know, I think he can be pretty solid right away. Center is a different animal. I think he's going to be awesome at closing out with that speed, uh, running guys off the line when necessary. Um, Another question too, and and I think Julius Randle defensively is an interesting comparison here, and I expect Zion to be a lot better than him, but Randle can't really play conventional pick and roll defense. That's something that Zion is going to have to figure out, I think, because it's unlikely he's going to be on a team that's going to be able to switch one through five all the time and be effective with that. That certainly you would think would be his better role. Also, post-defense, you know, hard to tell a lot of times in college with star players, their post-defense because they're just, they just don't want to foul and they shouldn't be overly physical in post-defense. But I did think he wasn't particularly impressive as a post-defender. That's something that's going to have to develop. But he's strong enough and quick enough. He should be able to just knock guys off balance and I think he'll be fine there. So both defensively and offensively, you got to find the right role for him. And those two things are related. If he can only defend the power forward position, now you're looking at, okay, you got to have a Brook Lopez type of center around him. You know, he's not going to really be able to stretch the floor. He's going to have the balls in his hands a lot. Historical comparisons, any that pop out to you? Not really. I mean, it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic with him where I liked him better in, in the half court. I liked him better with the ball in his hands than not. Sure. And that you run into a problem there. I've talked about this with Jason Tatum before, where you can be better with the ball in your hands than not, or Brandon Ingram, but still not be better, good enough to run an offense. And so then it becomes opportunistic. And I think that Gentry is a really good coach for him to figure out how to maximize yeah. this. But it's going to take some finesse because I don't, you know, I don't think he's, you know, I use the term primary ball handler. I don't think that he's going to reach that level. But as a change of pace guy, holy shit, could he end up messing with defense? Yeah, I think he could also be really effective as an elbow guy you run the dho you can't switch him because then he's going to put your guard in the goal uh he could any kind of fake dho if you follow the guard too much <laughs> he's going to be on top of the rim and dunking on you in less than one second so i and i think he can he's a very solid passer and can get even better there so i would like him running that kind of nicole Jokic, jamal murray sort of action obviously <clears throat> you double team the ball handler he can again make a play in space or, or just get right on top of the rim for an alley-oop so he's got a lot other than shooting his versatility to do everything else is incredibly impressive yeah something else that i think will be fascinating with him and this it'll be on david griffin in their front office to figure this out is getting a stout either two or three to run some zion that guy pick and roll i think you can you can just wreck teams that way because they're not going to want to switch it especially if you can get like an eric gordon not that he's going to want to go back to new orleans but get, get somebody who can set that screen and pop out and hit a three i like that with a small in some ways better than with a fellow big and because then you create kind of twin mismatches that could be really interesting and for players especially larger guys one of the ways that i like to differentiate offensive roles is do i think they're better with a speed advantage or do i think they're better with a size advantage so there are players in both directions here and for zion i personally like his speed game better than his size game some of that is also just sample size i i disagree with you i think I think it's be, 
Do you I like think, him posting up yeah, smalls better well, I, than I sipping think, by bigs? I think your most effective matchup on him is be guarding him center. Because he can't shoot. And, I mean, same way as, as with Giannis or Blake Griffin back in the day. Uh, you can kind of just wait under the rim for him with your center. You don't have to worry as much about getting blown by. See, I mean, there'll, well, there'll be no perfect matchup for him. But a small, you just have to double team. You have no chance of stopping him at all with a small. A big, at least, he's he's huge. He can put his body on him a little bit. He, Zion's got to shoot over him. He doesn't have really like much of a floater or a hook shot game. What concerns me there is if Zion, let's say his catch is elbow or beyond. I worry about I worry about the big defending in that much space. So that's going to be that's going to be an interesting an interesting thing for him. I, I could see it both ways. It's also going to depend on where his game goes, the handle, shot, all that kind of stuff. But it's I'm fascinated with that. All of those matchups are challenging. It's going to be it's going to be a blast. I mean, there's a lot to figure out. There. So a few other things I wanted to talk about with Zion, just in the overall picture here. The comps I think are useful here because he's such a unique player and looking at how those guys were used what they ended up being in the league so here here are a few comps that i have for him some on the higher ends or on the lower end blake griffin when he first came out i think is a pretty good comp blake didn't really have much of a jump shot whatsoever as we noted earlier he's he really developed one but that was kind of an outlier for him to improve that much i mean you remember he was you know a 50 percent free throw shooter when he was coming out but you know, didn't have like a great jump hook game i would actually say that zion is like a little bit more touch than him around the rim but they're both pretty good passers for their size zion much better ball handler than blake was when he came out but blake kind of evolved into being that as time went on and obviously blake an absolutely nuclear dunker i would say like in terms of his ability to dunk on people even more of a dunker than zion zion probably even more of a pogo stick on the offensive glass and zion you know blake griffin was like 245 250 you know just your normal pretty jacked nba power forward not 285 just who can really just plot through guys so, so that's one what do you think of that comp i like it I, and it, it's so hard sometimes and this will come up i, I want to talk a little bit about the historical context with zion of remembering where guys were that this is not like i don't think you're comparing him to blake griffin now or blake griffin at 25 it's blake griffin when he came out of oklahoma yeah zion also much more defensive potential and that's where i wanted to go that that to, Mar- to me is the part of the comparison that is giving him a little bit of short shrift i think his tools are better i think his instincts are better i didn't like Blake particularly defensively and Zion I think he's more he he has a better chance of being a, a capable if not better than capable defensive center than Blake Griffin ever did another one Charles Barkley Barkley much purer shot than Zion ended up being you know a low to mid 70s free throw shooter one of the worst three-point shooters in NBA history but had decent form and would take him and could get hot out there every once in a while you know his form just looked a lot better you know what by the time he was in his 30s than Zion's does now I, I don't Barkley was pretty much a non-shooter as, as I recall when he first got in the league but Barkley just an absolute monster on the offensive glass for his time a grab-and-go guy again nowhere close to the type of handle that Zion has I don't think anywhere close to the type of passer that Zion is either more ferocious on the offensive glass it was also just a different time in terms of the offensive glass the ability to just rise up around the rim knock guys off of you back down towards the rim Zion I think is you know even better of a lob catcher transition player and again Barkley you know is maybe one of the worst defensive big men to be a superstar ever and Zion I think has much more capability there Barkley never had you know just the sky high usage rate but was so incredibly efficient you know I don't think he ever pushed his usage rate into the 30s you know he's more kind of high 20s and but you know just crazy high true shooting percentages with the offensive glass all the dunks getting to the foul line constantly and so I think Zion can emulate that but I think 
Zion can bump his usage rate higher than Barkley because of his ability to handle the ball out in the perimeter, grab and go even more than Barkley well, catch and Because I think the game has has lent itself more to players like that getting the ball more than they used to. Yeah, no, that's a great point too. I mean, it, the 4-1 pick and roll didn't get run a lot back in Barkley's day, you know, and there's much more spacing now too, which there wasn't in Barkley's day. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, Zion could have more of an outsized impact on offense. Again, Charles Barkley is an all-time great player, probably a top 30 player of all time, uh, maybe even higher than that. So predicting any player who's drafted ever to be that sort of a player is probably a losing game, especially with you know, the possibility for injury or anything else. Uh, next one I had is Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think just in terms of the way he plays today, the type of team that you want to put around him, he is a very good example. I think more just in terms of the way he's going to be used. The lack of a jump shot, sure, with Giannis is part of it. Um, you know, Giannis played more on the perimeter as a younger player than Zion did I would actually say Zion's handle is probably better than Giannis's frankly um at least in terms of his off the dribble moves Giannis is, is pretty good in the open court obviously but in terms of change of direction getting to the rim but Zion doesn't have that freakish length he I would be shocked if he becomes as good of a defensive player as Giannis he was number two on both of our ballots for defensive player of the year this year I don't see Zion quite getting to that level um you know I mean if you had to ask me what is more likely or you know if you say hey is Zion going to be a great defensive player I'd probably say the odds are that he's not going to be that despite the really good steal percentage it's just he's got a lot of things working against him which Giannis doesn't necessarily so uh but I think it's more just in the way he's used being able to attack off the drill without the jump shot getting spacing around him it, a lot of that can be very instructive for whoever's trying to use uh Zion um and then another one on the low end is Julius Randall Randall again 30 pounds lighter than Zion is I mean and we've seen Randall really bully switching teams a lot teams that try to switch on him he can just put guys in the goal i think zion can do that zion way better handle way faster plays way harder way better defensively uh as a rim protector than randall who's ineffective there but we have seen you know if zion hits lower on his defense than we're talking about you see some of the issues that come into play with randall defensively where okay he can switch some and he's solid at that but he can't really play conventional pick and roll defense he's not that great as a help defender you know i think randall i think is instructive more as kind of like a lower case that if some of the skills don't develop the way that we hope that that they will that's fair to me and i i think zion has more verve in his game already and julius randall i mean he he has some intriguing skills as well and and zion to me he's shown more effort on defense than we've really seen from yeah. randall as well which is and zion's you know doubly as explosive as randall, oh, randall yeah. i mean he can dunk around the room he's a good athlete but he's you know he's not going to go just go and get these oops at the top of the square of the word zion yeah that that's definitely fair and and so i think that's a a, a good lead in do you have more comps because I, I to a discussion that i think we need to have yeah with, no go ahead which is i haven't seen enough yet of jaw or rj or theoretically anybody else but i feel pretty damn confident that zion will be my number one that is not groundbreaking that is nothing new but instead with players like him what can be a worthwhile exercise is to think about them again comparing these to to these players as prospects not what they became to other great prospects from other times and so for me i had a little bit of trouble placing him because he doesn't fit as neatly into a box as some of the other guys and that can be a positive i mean we've seen that in a lot of a lot of different guys i mean Giannis is a good example here like Giannis breaking molds is a good 
thing because that makes him harder to defend and his skill set is unusual and his length and everything else. And now I think that's been a part of his defensive growth and explosion over the last few years. But the guy that you hear thrown out, thrown around is Anthony Davis. I do not have Zion as, as good of a prospect as Davis, though, you know, that's not to say he can never be as good as Davis is or anything like that, but partially because I knew how Davis was going to work. His offensive game, I think, grew earlier than I expected, but Davis had that defensive player of the year potential, which I do not see in Zion and sadly has not all the way come to fruition in New Orleans. So then I, I would say the next one down, I, I'm kind of hesitant to talk as much about Odin, even though I loved Odin more than Carl Anthony Towns because of the way that things went for him, you know, like because it was it was something that I didn't see coming with his body, his lower body and everything else like that. But comparing Zion to Towns as prospects is something that I found fascinating. Yeah, I think clearly at the time, Towns uh, is below Giannis or, or below Zion to me. Um, if I had to decide with Zion, my guess would be he doesn't make it to being a top five NBA player uh, because it's just becoming more of a perimeter oriented league. And without the jump shot, how many shots can he create? I don't think he's going to be a massive defensive difference maker. I think he'd be totally solid there, but my guess would be he doesn't make an all defense team in his career. Could very easily be wrong there, but it would he would be an even more rare archetype to do that than Draymond Green. And Draymond, people people have been looking for the next Draymond Green for a long time. Pretty much every shorter than average power forward with decent feet can thank Draymond Green for people thinking that they can, that the guys can be really good defensively. And I think Zion can be that, but nonetheless, Draymond just has preternatural anticipation and hands and wingspan. And so expecting him to get to that level, I, I don't think is fair. And then because I don't expect him to develop a jump shot that's really a threat, especially off the dribble and posting up, it's just kind of limited the impact that a traditional big can have. I mean, it's been a long, long time since a traditional big has been in the mix for best player in the NBA or even a top five player. You know, maybe Griffin was at that point for a year or two. Dwight Howard, you'd have to go back to that level. KG in 08, Tim Duncan, and a lot of those guys had a, a lot more defensive ability than Zion. Now, the counter to that is, well, he's got enough of a handle and the game is so different now, you can still get the ball in his hands and he could be just like Young and can drive his usage rate up to those crazy levels and he's going to be that efficient and he can pass. And yeah, I, I definitely understand that. But even Giannis, we've seen in these playoffs, it's kind of tough to get him the ball at the end of games and say, hey, go create because you can take away what he's doing at the rim a lot of times. You know, the, even the Bucks will go to Middleton a fair amount. So that's what I see. You know, I think if I had to predict what is his career going to look like, you know, I think he's going to be a top 15 player in the NBA, you know, five or more all-star appearances, but more likely than not, and especially when you throw in the potential for injury as well, which you never know, but that has to be priced in a little bit. More likely than not to me that he does not become a top five player. Uh, certainly has the potential to be that, but it's also worth noting that if some things don't work out for him defensively, then he's a power forward and, you know, power forwards who don't shoot threes are very tough to fit around in today's league. Fortunately, there are more centers that can work in that and, and we'll, we'll yeah. probably see more over the course of the next couple of years. I haven't watched these young guys, but considering how much seven footers have liked shooting threes when I've gone to high school gyms in the last few years, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I, I broadly agree with you in terms of Zion. I actually have him in kind of the same general area as Towns, but I do have Zion above Towns as well. And something that I've had trouble squaring with him and maybe Summer League will be instructive here, is that I could imagine him being a player who initially gets overrated because of his highlights, but then some of the like the little things he does, his his motor and his and his passing and all those sorts of things, maybe he's one of those players who they're 
like kind of like layers of the onion where some people appreciate it because he's a crazy dunker and he'll have some amazing defensive highlights as well, but that he does have more substance there. So it's not quite as divisive as maybe somebody like Allen Iverson, let's say, who I, I have, I've always thought that got overrated by certain sections of basketball fandom. But Zion's going to be one hell of a player. And I'm also watching him more. I got more excited in the context of him going to play with Alvin Gentry in New Orleans because I didn't appreciate how special and how different his offensive game was. And that's going to be hard to figure out how to maximize. And Gentry would be on my short list of coaches to say, figure this out. You have two years or whatever it's going to be. See what you can do with it. And I think I think he's going to get that opportunity. And I'm I'm thrilled about it. And moreover, David Griffin, who, you know, there's certainly some LeBron-esque aspects to Zion as well. Certainly LeBron is, you know, more of a traditional small forward and has operated facing the basket more and a better passer, more reliable jump shot, even at this age, more projectable jump shot. But David Griffin has seen how incredibly powerful it can be to just have that one engine where you put the ball in his hands and get enough shooting around him. So I I trust Griffin to maximize. I mean, we've seen both Gentry and Griffin. The other thing about Gentry and Griffin too is having been in phoenix together and and the pace that new orleans has played with the last few years like they'll push the ball down the floor and that's where zion is the most devastating is in transition so i i am very excited to see what he looks like in this new orleans system uh anything else to talk about before we go i already mentioned the clay thompson piece that should be out on friday morning also my real jam radio podcast with ben golliver was really fun we talked about both conference finals and then his experience in what he called the dungeon he was in the the real lottery room where the ping pong balls were settled and how that process is different from the televised version in terms of timing and figuring everything out we went through some of the mechanics there and his alvin gentry stories are absolutely fantastic you should listen just for that but also because it's great talking with ben so you have that and then we will be back with the nba cast on saturday for an immense game six of this eastern conference finals and as of right now our plan is to also record a podcast that night because that's a big game we don't want to let it wait so get ready for another unusual dunked on schedule but for a damn good reason all right we will talk to y'all then bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022 investments like acquiring america's largest biogas producer archaea energy and starting up new infrastructure in the gulf of mexico it's and not or See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.